the accused Narayan Kamre, age 65, is charged under Indian Penal Code, Section 306, abatement of suicide. Vikas Dubey is dead. He's been killed after an encounter broke out. This is the big breaking news that's coming in dramatically. Suspense is finally over. The Mumbai trial court today gave Mohammed Ajmal Amir Kassab the death sentence for murder and waging war against the country 17 months after the 26th The Constituent Assembly to frame the Constitution in terms of paragraph 3 of the resolution. Welcome to the Daksh Podcast. I'm Leah. I work with Daksh, which is a Bangalore-based non-profit working on judicial reforms and access to justice. One of the tragedies of the Indian prison system is the high proportion of under-trial prisoners. As on 31st December 2020, there were 3.7 lakh under-trial prisoners in India's prisons, three-fourths of the total prison population. Under-trial prisoners are those prisoners who have not been convicted of a crime yet. Their trials have either not started or are ongoing. 87% of them are Muslim, Christian, Dalit, Adivasi or OBC. The overuse of under-trial detention effectively ends up punishing people before they are convicted and makes a mockery of their right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. The high number of under-trial prisoners in our system has not changed in the last three decades. This week, we are chatting with Dr. Vijay Raghavan about under-trial detention in Indian prisons. He is a professor at the Centre of Criminology and Justice at TISS. He is also the project director of Prayas, which has been working for the last 30 years towards rehabilitation and social integration of persons in prison, women rescued from commercial sexual exploitation and children in conflict with the law. I began by asking Vijay to describe the Indian prison landscape in terms of demographics and categories of prisoners. So, uh, if you look at the overall prison statistics India report, which is published every year, and the last report that we have with us is the 2019 uh, report, there are about four and a half lakh plus prisoners right now at any given point of time. The Prison Statistics India report counts the number of prisoners as on 31st December of that year. So, the last figure that is available is about four and a half lakh prisoners. 70% 70% nearly of them are under trials. Around 4 to 5% of them are women. There are about 1,300 odd prisons in the country in which these prisoners are kept across the 29 states and union territories. In terms of uh, demographics, women constitute a very small percentage, about 4%. If you look at people from the marginalized sections of society. Indian prisons are highly overrepresented, as is the case in prisons across the world. So if you look at SC, ST, OBC and uh, Muslim community, it constitutes more than 85% of the total prison population, which shows that uh, most of our prisons are full of people from the marginalized uh, sections of society. If you look at the socioeconomic profile, you will find that though there is no official data on this, but experience of people who have been working in the system tells us that most of the people, 75 to 80% of people in our prisons come from the very poor sections of society in terms of class and economic background, and also in terms of family support. A large number of under trials as well as convicted prisoners come from family backgrounds which are very weak as well as uh, families which may be in some kind of a conflict situation from where they come. 
So that pretty much sums up the situation of uh, prisoners and especially under trial prisoners in our country. Yeah. So uh, zeroing in on the under trial problem. So, you know, we've been talking about this issue for so many years. There's been a lot of media attention, but the problem doesn't seem to go away. What do you think are the main reasons for such a high proportion of under trials in our prisons? Well, uh, like all complex problems, the solutions are also not very simple. There are multiple reasons for that. I would focus on starting with the lack of access to competent legal aid as one of the prime reasons why there are people who are languishing in prisons. The second area which is crying out for reform is the whole issue of uh, grant of bail. The bail system in our country needs a complete thorough relook. Then, of course, the most talked of issue is the one of the fact that there are uh, delays in our trial process. And as Daksh, you are a much more competent uh, organization to talk about you know, why there are these delays. One, of course, is the judge population ratio in our country, which needs a relook. Uh, second is uh, the kind of adjournments that are allowed in court cases. Uh, the legal procedures which are in place also need some kind of a review. So I'm not much of an expert on that area, but I can say that a lot of the issues are also related to the fact that, uh, you know, people's uh, cases go on for years together, whether they are as under trials or after they get released on bail. There's also this issue of under trials not being produced on their court dates on time because of the fact that we don't have enough police persons to escort them to a prison, uh, from prison to court on their court dates. As for the CRPC, the law is that it is the job of the police to take prisoners to court or to hospitals, unlike in many other countries uh, where prisons have their own escort facilities, whereas here the responsibility is given to the police. And here we find that uh, because police has many other priorities, police themselves are understaffed and overworked, and law and order is always a higher priority as far as they are concerned. So escorting prisoners to court or to hospital comes very low on their priority list. So very often what happens is that the date comes and uh, instead of the prisoner being physically produced in court, that remand warrant is taken to the court and the remand warrant is uh, kind of stamped by the court officer and uh, he or she is then given another date. And this can go on for a few times before the person is physically produced. We also have a system of production of under trials through video conferencing today, but even that system seems to be not working so well because of number of practical issues. And in opinion of some of us, it's also there are other human rights issues involved when one is talking about producing under trials through the video conferencing system because it completely takes away any possibility of the prisoner meeting their lawyer in court or to meet their family members in court, which is a much easier process than meeting family members in the prison mulakat system. And one more reason, of course, uh, which I, I think I forgot to mention, is the fact that we are constantly arresting more and more people, a lot of whom probably don't need to be kept behind bars. And, you know, there are Supreme Court orders as well as there is a CRPC amendment in 2013, which allows the police the discretion not to arrest and just charge the person with the offense in certain categories of offenses and ask the person to be in court when the case is being started. But however, police often, in fact, routinely arrests everybody instead of uh, using this discretionary power. So these could be some of the reasons why 
uh, you know the numbers don't seem to be going down yeah the the issue of uh, you know arbitrary arrests and indiscriminate arrests is something you know we've been discussing in other episodes of our podcast too and um, that's a good segue to my next question you know we've seen in the recent high profile uh, cases like aryan khan you know where uh, the police or other law enforcement agencies insist on arrest and custody irrespective of how shaky their uh, case is or whether you know the accused is a pregnant woman or an 84 year old man with parkinsons why do you think law enforcement agencies and public prosecutors insist on custody long periods of custody there could be a, a range of uh, reasons for this also my own sense is that there is a the chilling effect that happens when you arrest somebody it sends out a message to the rest of society police thinks that it is their job to send down that chilling effect the other reason i have often heard police officers informally discuss is that when they don't arrest people in the nearby locality the immediate community where the police is uh, located uh, and i'm talking of ordinary offenses and not talking of cases like uap and you know national investigation agency kind of cases but ordinary cases which form the bulk of the cases that come to prison when they don't arrest people in the area think that there's some hanky panky going on you know uh, why isn't the police arresting the person and they might even assume that the police has taken a bribe in not taking there is a lot of pressure on the police from the local communities to show uh, some kind of uh, you know action and action is often seen in terms of arrest in fact uh, this is also one of the reasons why i find that police does not give bail at the police station what is called as table jamin in hindi uh, common parlance which is the practice which you probably only see in hindi films when you know the lawyer comes to the police station and you know gets the person out on bail but typically the police has powers to release a person on bail in bailable matters at least and you never see that option being exercised by the police the police leaves it to the court for the bail to be granted and here again i'm suspecting that the reason is the same that they are either worried or scared that if they do that then the people in the area an impression would get created that there is some illegal practices because of which the person has been released on bail of course uh, there is also the issue of uh, you know who has how much influence so sometimes cases for the same kind of offense what exact section would be imposed is often a matter of some discretion as far as the arresting police uh, officer is concerned in a case of let's say assault whether to apply section 323 which is simple hurt or whether to apply 324 or 326 which is grievous hurt is a matter of interpretation at least at the stage of arrest and there is a possibility of influence coming in or even money changing hands because of which a particular section would get imposed on that person so for example uh, 307 or 326 307 is attempt to murder 326 is grievous hurt uh, whether to apply 326 or to apply 307 because it has implications on bail the kind of section that has been imposed so these are also some of the factors uh, in fact once uh, an under trial prisoner had told me in, in hindi that you know police station mein case pakta hai which means that uh, the case is uh, actually getting cooked in the police station and that is a stage before the charges are formally framed 
that is a stage where there is scope for uh, some kind of discretionary powers of the police as well as some kind of corrupt practices coming into the picture but what about prosecutors you know because prosecutors are supposed to be officers of the court you know they are not just supposed to be the mouthpiece of the law enforcement agencies why has it become the culture even among prosecutors to insist on custody yeah that's a very good question i i don't think i have a, a good answer to that prosecutors have almost become like a handmaiden of the police whereas they are supposed to be an independent agency which is supposed to assess the case and then on that basis argue in court i mean i'll give you a recent example when the covid struck and the supreme court passed this suomoto pil order that hpcs should be constituted the high powered committee should be constituted in every state to identify categories of under trials and convicts who can be released on temporary bail or on emergency parole and in state after state i can say with some authority about the situation in maharashtra where we work when the high powered committee passed certain guidelines of who could be released on bail or on temporary uh, parole they had made a calculation because the population of the prisons in maharashtra at that point we are talking of sometime between march to may 2020 was about 35000 and the prison head of the department was very strongly of the view that for any kind of social distancing to take place you need to reduce it by about 50% and so they had identified categories of prisoners who could be released on bail and bring down the prison population to 17500 odd but ultimately uh, one found that only about 10000 of them were released so about 7500 who could have been released were not released by the trial courts because the final power of releasing on bail rests with the trial courts the high powered committee can only give recommendations now when we were working at the ground level one of the things that we found was that routinely all these bail applications were being opposed by the pp's office the public prosecutors office whereas this was not bail on merit there was no need for them to oppose the bail because this was a temporary measure being taken due to an health pandemic an emergency situation and all the arms of the state should have been on the same page some of the magistrates uh, informally do share with some of our team members of the record that if the state is issuing uh, guidelines why is one wing of the state opposing the bail and then it becomes difficult for a trial court magistrate to take a quick decision for some of our uh, listeners who are not really familiar with the criminal justice system can you just explain the difference between a bailable and a non-bailable offense so a uh, very simply put a bailable offense is uh, is a case where bail is a matter of right the judge or the magistrate in that case has to grant bail conditions may vary but the bail has to be granted whereas in a non bailable case it simply means that the the whether to grant bail or not is the discretion of the of the judge or the magistrate who is who is hearing the matter and in non bailable cases the bail is uh, granted uh, based on the merits of the case so the lawyer of the accused has to apply for bail in non bailable matters whereas in bailable matters uh, you don't have to apply for bail it should automatically be granted the moment uh, the person is arrested and brought before the court uh, and if it's a bailable offense then the magistrate or the judge should immediately grant bail sometimes they do it a little later but but they are supposed to grant bail in all these cases so that's the difference between a bailable and non bailable offense 
Yeah. So in a non-bailable offense, uh, could you just describe how the system actually works? You know, how is bail granted? What are the conditions of bail? And who are the uh, under trial prisoners who are affected by most by this system? So like I said, if we start with bailable offenses, the moment a person gets arrested, produced in court, bail can be granted even before being produced in court by the police station itself. But otherwise, it, once it comes to court, the court is supposed to grant bail. Now, bail can be with various conditions. There are different types of bail. You have surety bail, whereby uh, you have to produce a person who stands guarantee that in case this person does not attend court dates or absconds or tampers with the evidence or tries to influence the witnesses, the amount of the surety bail, suppose it's a surety bail of 10,000 rupees, that amount can be confiscated from the surety. You know, so it's like a it's a, like a fine that that person will have to pay. In fact, there are even provisions in the law under which the surety can even get arrested uh, for giving false assurances, but that rarely happens. Then you have cash bail, where you have to deposit cash uh, of the said amount in the court, uh, and that amount can be taken back once the trial is over. Whether it ends in a conviction or a, 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 a acquittal is doesn't matter. Once the trial is over, the amount can be uh, taken back by the person who has deposited the cash bail, cash amount. And the third is what is known as release on personal recognizance bond, which is popularly known as PR bond, which essentially means that the court is releasing the person purely on that accused person's word of honor. That, you know, he uh, signs a bond saying that I promise to attend all court dates. I promise not to uh, tamper with evidence. I promise not to influence witnesses. And I promise to be there till the end of the trial. And sometimes along with the personal bond, they might ask for a you know bond of 10,000 or whatever. But that is notional. It's not something that uh, the person has to pay. Plus, there are also conditions that can be additional conditions that the court can pass. For example, attendance in police station. The court might say that you, you have to come to the police station every day, take the signature of the duty officer at the police station, or once a week or once a month. Sometimes we have also had some very interesting cases of bail conditions being granted, some of which, which has also been challenged and overthrown by superior courts. Uh, I, I recently, there was this case of this uh, judge who was asking the accused to go and do some cleaning work in that village where he was uh, coming from. So there are all kinds of uh, conditions that could be passed. So it's actually left to the court what conditions it imposes. Actually, th th this categorization of cash bail, surety bail, personal bond is not something, personal bond is there in the law, but otherwise cash bail, surety bail, it's not as if it's specifically mentioned in the law. It's a practice that has developed over the years and courts are free to impose any conditions they wish as long as they are satisfied that the person being released will attend court dates. That is the main thing as far as the bailable offenses are concerned. Now, in non-bailable offenses, the thing is that bail is not a matter of right. So the lawyer of the accused has to apply for bail based on the merits of the case. The lawyer has to actually prove that prima facie there is not enough evidence to keep this person inside. And that is fought on merit by both sides, the prosecutor's office and the defense lawyer. And based on the arguments of both parties, the court takes a final decision whether to uh, grant bail or not with whatever conditions it thinks fit. 
If the bail is rejected at the lower court, the matter can go in appeal, first at the Sessions Court, then the High Court and the Supreme Court. So this is how uh, the whole bail thing works in practice. So uh, coming to the modes of bail that you described, you know, cash bail, PR bond and surety, uh, which is the mode that magistrates prefer? So if one looks at the three modes that I mentioned about surety bail, cash bail, personal bond, the greatest preference is for surety bail because the, the magistrate or the judge wants to make sure that the person does not abscond. There is great pressure on the trial court magistrates and judges to ensure that case disposal happens at a good speed. Uh, and therefore, they do not want to have a whole bunch of cases which are marked as pending cases. And therefore, they have increasingly become very careful when it comes to granting bail. Uh, I mean, the whole maxim of Justice Krishnayar of the Supreme Court that bail, not jail, should be the, the rule is something that we increasingly are finding not actually playing out at the ground level because courts are very, very worried that if they grant person on bail, then there's a chance that this person may not attend uh, later court dates and then it will go on to the pile of pending cases, which affects their performance appraisal as well. And therefore, their greatest preference is for releasing on surety bail. Depending on the kind of property that has been recovered or the kind of case that has been uh, you know, filed against the person, the amount of the surety can vary between anything between, say, even 5,000 rupees to you know, a few lakh. Then in some cases, the magistrates are willing to consider cash bail, but they are usually not the very serious offenses. Uh, and where uh, you know, cash bail usually uh, would go up to maybe 10, 15, 20, 25,000, and sometimes a little more than that, maybe up to 50,000 rupees. Uh, but generally speaking, even cash bail is something that is not very often granted. In fact, sometimes at the request of the lawyer, the magistrate may grant cash bail for a temporary period and then ask the accused to find a surety. So they might say, we are giving you cash bail of one month and within a month, you have to find a person who will stand surety for you. The third category, which is release on personal bond, is again, if you'd say like a descending order, it's the least often used provision in the law. Magistrates are very reluctant to use personal bond because there is some kind of a thinking that they have, whether it is uh, grounded in reality or not, one has to probably do a study to understand that. But their anecdotal data or evidence says that when people are released on personal bond, many of them do not come back to court on court dates and those cases remain pending. Uh, so unless they are very sure that this person is a person with local roots and therefore many times when releasing persons on personal bond, they insist on ID proof documents and also residence proof documents to be produced uh, so that they are assured that this person will not abscond later on. So personal bond often is the one provision which I would say is an enabling provision for people who are poor, for people who are migrants, for people who do not have local sureties available. And therefore, there is a provision in the law to allow for releasing a person on personal bond. But in reality, it is something that doesn't get used. And therefore, you will also find a good number of people in prison who have been granted bail, but they are still inside. Normally speaking, the moment bail is granted, people would move heaven and earth to ensure that they are able to go out on bail. 
They would sell their property. They would sell jewelry. They'll take loans. They will mortgage their land. Anything that is possible, particularly if they have some family support. But despite that, if you have a good number of people in any prison who are granted bail and still they are inside for months together, then it is a very sure sign that, you know, these are people who have absolutely no social supports. And in fact, there is a provision under Section 436A of the CRPC. And that section says that if anybody has been granted bail and remains inside for more than a week, then that person shall, it, in fact, very funny, it says may and shall be considered as indigent. Now, the moment you say may and shall, it again leaves discretion uh, with the magistrate. And then that person should be released on personal bond. Here again, you find that it's not happening all the time. Yeah, that's quite interesting, you know, because a lot of people think that, you know, the problem is money, you know, because in the US system, uh, often the problem is money and it's poverty that is keeping people in prison. I mean, in the Indian system too, in a sense, it may be poverty, but it's not just about money. It's also about uh, your networks and your social capital. Absolutely. It's social capital and your social supports. Because in order to be able to find somebody who will stand guarantee for you, which means that you have some relationship with that person. And if it is a family member, they might be too poor and their papers are not worth it. Because, you know, if it's a surety bail of, say, 25,000 rupees, you have to produce papers to show that in the eventuality, you will be able to pay that amount, which means you have to show a salary slip. Of course, basic documents like ID proof, residence proof goes without saying. Then they might ask for electricity bill copy. They might ask for a ration card. Uh, they might ask for, uh, of course, your Aadhaar card. Everything is today Aadhaar card based. Or they might ask for your income tax returns. So the court has to be satisfied that these documents are good enough for the bill to actually fructify. And a lot of people will not have these documents with them. And they may not have people around them, friends or relatives, who have those kind of documents. Or even if they have, they're willing to come and get involved in a court case. Who wants to get involved in a court case in a, in a country like India where there is so much of, you know, bad uh, mounting of, uh, and rightly so, about the situation of our courts in the justice system? So if you can just tell us uh, one efficacious reform that we can do in our legal system to reduce uh, the proportion of under trials in our prisons. I would say two things. I started off with those two. I'll, I'll end with those two. We have to improve the quality of legal aid services that we provide to people who are in custody. Right now, what is being passed off as legal aid, it's quite a sorry state of affairs. And that has got to do with the fact that the honorarium that is paid to legal aid lawyers is really a pittance. Let's say, for example, you take Maharashtra, the honorarium that is paid to a legal aid lawyer is uh, 500 rupees per hearing for a non-effective hearing and 750 rupees per hearing for an effective hearing. Now, non-effective hearing is where on days when nothing happened, effective hearing is where some hearing took place. For a bail application, the amount is 500 rupees for one bail application in lower court. And I think in the higher court, it is uh, 750 or 1000 rupees. Now, if this is the kind of honorarium that you're paying a legal aid lawyer, you know what to expect. You can only have a few highly public spirited lawyers who would come and provide legal aid without bothering about the money that is being paid. But for most people, this does not even cover their traveling cost. 
a lawyer has to go to court, has to file papers, uh, get photocopies of things done. And there are procedures whereby they can get uh, reimbursement for all those kind of expenses, photocopying and things of that sort. But again, there is so much of paperwork and bureaucracy that is involved. Let me tell you about the bail procedure, for example. Once you have filed a bail application, that 500 rupees that you're supposed to get, you don't get it immediately. You get it at the end of the trial. The trial might take five years and you'll get your 500 rupees after that five years are over and the trial is completed. So there are some really, I don't know, I, I don't know what to say. It's almost as if the system is designed to fail. The appointment letters that are to go to the legal aid lawyers, once a lawyer has been appointed, it's still being sent by post or by courier instead of being emailed. For an under trial who needs legal aid, the application has to go by snail mail from the prison authorities to the DLSA office. I don't know when we are talking so much about technology, why, you know, we can't use email and, uh, you know, other kinds of technological means to kind of communicate between different wings of the institution. When a bail order is passed uh, by the court, the prison authorities come to know about it only after the bail fructifies. So it, if at any given point of time, if the courts or anybody wants to know how many people are in prison who have been granted bail and are still inside, they have to physically go and ask the under trials who have been granted bail to find out that uh, thing because prison authorities say we have, nobody sends us intimation when bail is granted. The courts don't. A simple copy of the bail order could be emailed to the prison superintendent when bail is granted. You know? So there are so many things that doesn't require any kind of rocket science. The second one, and uh, is again uh, the one which I had mentioned earlier, is bail reforms. We must engage in a serious exercise to look at how bail could be made more accessible to people and we could find non-financial ways of bail being granted. For example, can a local organization in that area come forward and provide some kind of moral guarantee? Because, you know, you can't expect a voluntary organization to provide uh, any kind of uh, financial guarantee or uh, let's say a retired uh, school teacher in that area. What you know, this whole concept of fit person, which exists when in the case of uh, laws relating to children and women, that often uh, custody is handed over to a fit person. So can some concept like that be thought about? Also uh, in the West, they're also doing some kind of risk analysis, deciding whether to grant bail or not. There could be a set of parameters which could aid the court in taking a decision. I'm not in favor of technology or AI taking over human uh, decisions, but it could act like an indicator. Like suppose there are five factors to be looked at, you know, and on that basis of out of five, three are looking good, then the court can take a decision that, you know, I don't even have to take a grant surety bail. I can just release this person on personal bond. So we have to engage in an exercise of bail reforms. And we have to improve the quality of legal aid services that we are providing. And that will only happen when we have a cadre of legal aid lawyers appointed on a full-time basis, in my opinion. Or you increase the legal aid honorarium so substantially that it becomes feasible for a public-spirited lawyer to take up legal aid matters. I'm told that the NALSA has, is now currently piloting a defense counsel system in a few districts in, the, in a few states. And I think that is the way to go. It's the step in the right direction. If that does work out, then probably it will lead to some improvement in legal aid services for under trials. 
This was my conversation with Professor Vijay Raghavan and you've been listening to the Daksh podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Leah Burgess. If you like the show, don't forget to follow or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast so that you don't miss an episode. We would love to hear from you, so do share your feedback either by dropping us a review or rating the podcast where podcast apps allow you to. Talk about it on social media. We are using the hashtag #DakshPodcast. It really helps get the word out there. Most of all, if you found some useful information that might help a friend or family member, share the episode with them. A special thank you to our production team at Made in India. Our production head and editor Joshua Thomas, mixing and mastering Kartik Kulkarni, and project supervisor Sean Fanthom. If you want to find out more about this topic, please have a look at the reading list in the episode description. And to get in touch, visit our website dakshindia.org. That's d a k s h india.org. Thank you for listening.